Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We want to wish you a very happy new year, and we're going to start this new year with our final episode in our series in the Gospel of Luke. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers will be discussing Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, which is Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple. We wanted to make you aware there are a couple of audio glitches here at the beginning of the episode, but those will pass after a few minutes. As always, please check out the links in the show notes. We have a link down there to Theopolitan Liturgy, which is our most recent book with Theopolis Books by Peter Lightheart. That book does an incredible job at laying out a Theopolitan vision for liturgical worship. We also have a link down there to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. And when you sign up, you will get a free download of an ebook by Peter Lightheart on Pato Communion. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is also linked below, so you can get our weekly videos published every Monday on Bible, liturgy, and culture. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are encouraged by this conversation over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, and Alistair Roberts wrapping up our series in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, discussing Jesus in the temple. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes is also here. Uh, we wish you all a very uh, Merry Christmas. Hope you had a very Merry Christmas. Uh, and that your new year is off to a good start, that you're, we pray for your, the Lord's blessings on the coming year, and uh, that your time reflecting on the past year and celebrating the coming year and celebrating the birth of our Lord has been joyful and edifying and has been a, a great blessing to you. From the beginning of Advent, a little bit before Advent, until the present, we've been devoting podcasts to the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Luke gives us the most extensive overview or treatment of uh, the early life of Jesus. We have a, a shorter set of uh, birth narratives in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew that it contained different information, different experiences and episodes in Jesus' life. Mark has no birth narrative, and John has no birth narrative. So we're left with Matthew and Luke, and Luke has the, the largest section of his Gospel devoted to this. So we've been looking to those at those first couple of chapters as we're We've been looking ahead to Christmas and through the Christmas season. And this week, we're finishing up that um, that uh, series uh, with the, the last part of Luke 2. Uh, this goes out of the uh, infancy narratives. These are not birth. This is not a birth story anymore. Uh, we skip over uh, the first 12 years of Jesus' life. Uh, we know from other sources that Jesus spent his time making clay birds and uh, breathing life into them and doing various kinds of tricks that would uh, press his friends and demonstrate was indeed the incarnate Son of God. Uh, that's not in the Bible, though, so we're left with just this one story of Jesus at the age of 12 going to the temple. And before we look at the details of the passage, I wanted to highlight the shape of the first couple of chapters of Luke as a whole. We've been pointing out how often uh, Luke is foreshadowing things that are going to take place later in the gospel, and particularly at the end of the gospel. We talked about that in the last couple of episodes, there are these symmetries between beginning and end. And you can see that on a small scale, even within the first couple of chapters. The first couple of chapters are kind of an encaps- encapsulation of the uh, whole story that Luke is going to tell about Jesus. We've pointed out a number of times, for example, that the gospel of, Matthew, uh, the gospel of Luke rather begins in the temple, where Zechariah is in the temple, and Gabriel's appearance to him to announce the uh, Elizabeth's conception and the coming birth of John. 
the gospel ends in the temple after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the disciples are back in the temple rejoicing and praising God for the coming of the Messiah. So you have this frame in the temple, and you have the same frame uh, around the beginning of two chapters. The first story takes place in the temple with Zechariah. The last story takes place in the temple now with Jesus in the temple, uh, surrounded by the teachers and the scribes, listening to them and asking questions and demonstrating his already profound grasp of the scriptures. We can also see the uh, the movement of the of the uh, chapters. There's a long journey narrative within the Gospel of Luke from the time of the Transfiguration until the entry into Jerusalem. The framework that Luke provides for that 10-chapter section is a journey toward Jerusalem. A lot of things happen along that journey to Jerusalem, but the basic storyline, the framework of all those episodes is that Jesus is moving from Galilee toward Jerusalem for his final weeks, his final week in Jerusalem and his death at the time of the Passover. And we have that same structure going on in the first couple of chapters of Luke. Uh, this uh, final story begins with a journey uh, from uh, the uh, Jesus' home in, in Galilee down to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. It's told very briefly, but it is foreshadowing that later journey that Jesus is going to take for the final Passover of his earthly life. So again, we have the shape of the whole narrative of Luke is foreshadowed in these couple of chapters at the beginning of the gospel. And there it's not a surprise when we find out that he's lost for um, it's three days that um, they don't know where he is. And that would seem to be very much a prefiguration of the later story of the crucifixion and resurrection, along with the couple journeying away from Jerusalem and then coming back and searching. The bafflement um, and the confusion on the part of others is something that will come out all through Jesus' ministry. Um, so here, everyone around him is frantic and confused and clueless or even distressed. Seems to be the beginning of a theme. Um, you know, they people don't understand uh, who he is, what he's doing. Um, you, you see a few instances of this in other parts of Luke. You know, who is this guy speaking blasphemies? Who is this that forgives sins? Uh, they didn't understand what he was saying. Um, and this is also the gospel, remember, that begins with Jesus preaching in his hometown, his home synagogue, and he's greeted by a mob that tries to throw him off a cliff. So, um, you know, although we know more about Jesus than his parents and others in this story, uh, we, we also, I think, Luke wants us to know that this guy is pretty, is pretty wonderful and astonishing. Uh, and uh, he's not, he, people can't control him. He's the son of God. Uh, he's not under the thumb of his parents or of the rabbis. Um, he seems to have this uh, self-control, this self-assurance here, even at 12 years old. That's an interesting contrast between what you talked about, the bafflement, the astonishment of his parents, their bafflement about what he's up to. That in contrast to the, the clarity of Jesus' sense of vocation and identity you have, you've had a lot of a, a lot of question over the last uh, couple of centuries from new testament scholarship about the the messianic consciousness of jesus and uh, whether he was aware of his his identity as the son of god there's complicated and interesting questions that come along with that but i think the this passage is pretty clear that jesus at the age of 12 is aware that he has a vocation uh, he's aware of his identity as a son of the father and knows that he's supposed to be out the, about the business of his father. That's one way to translate 
the last phrase of uh, verse 49, I should be about my father's things. I should be about my father's business. I should be in my father's house. However, we translate that, it's clear that Jesus has this sense of vocation. So, and that, that contrast is uh, like the confusion you talk about, Jeff. That contrast is running through the whole gospel where Jesus has this kind of laser focus on what he's come to do uh, and all the confusion and opposition that surround him doesn't keep him from fulfilling that vocation. These are also similar responses to the ones that we see to the disciples in the beginning of Acts when they're teaching among the people in the temple and the leaders are astonished at their teaching, wondering these are unlearned men, these aren't part of the scribal class, and yet they're teaching with such authority and confidence and wisdom. And here I think we have Jesus um, showing, as it were, um, the primary example of that as the one who's the great teacher and going even beyond characters like Samuel that we see as a model for this passage. We see Christ as one who teaches with an authority that stands out from the authority of the teachers of the time. And the fact that this is occurring when he's 12 years older, I think is significant too. Luke, throughout his gospel, gives attention to that number, um, whether it's in the age of someone like Anna, 84 seven times 12, or Jairus's daughter and the woman with the issue of blood, the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, Jairus's daughter being 12 years old. That number is an important one for Luke, and that Christ is acting in this way at 12 years of age and showing his commitment to his father's business. He is behaving as a true Israel, as a true son of God that Israel was called to be. Yeah, I was talking about the father's house has this twofold sense, or maybe mo- multiple sense of the Lord is the father of Israel. Uh, the Lord is the father of the Davidic king, according to the Davidic covenant. Uh, and of course, that's being opened out in the story of Jesus. And Jesus is a son in a, a much fuller sense than even than that. Jeff, you were going to say? Yeah, these are, these are the first words of Jesus in this gospel. And they have to do with his identity and his mission. And like we've already said, it's pretty striking that as 12 years old, he at least has some understanding of who he is and what he's called to do. Um, this, wait a minute, I thought this passage was about uh, a critique of um, free-range parenting. Uh, isn't that what it's about? <laughs> Can't we learn some lessons here about that's how you've applied it when you've uh, when you preached on it, Jeff. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I know what free range parenting is. Free range parenting? Well, it's like you know, free range chickens. You just kind of let your chickens go out there and let them do whatever they want. Um, there's always a joke about people certain parenting styles in the church. You know, parents bring their kids into church and their kids just run free. And um, <laughs> I remember years ago, I remember one of the women saying, hey, uh, how do you like that free range parenting? And it kind of stuck with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, how is it? How is it and the, the opposite. Is- yeah, the story is not a critique of that. The story seems to affirm that the Holy Family itself practices free range parenting. <laughs> yeah. Appears. But then they lost their child. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah that part <laughs> yeah that part <laughs> i find it interesting reading this alongside the story that we have as samuel's first childhood story where he's a um, an actor within it which is again a story 
in part that's asking the question of who is Samuel's true father? Um, who is the one that he must look to as the one that is his model, is the one whose business he must be about? And it's this mistaking, first of all, the voice of God for the voice of Eli, and then again, and then finally realizing that it is God who's speaking to him. And then the judgment being declared upon the house of Eli at that point. And many of the similar phrases that we, many of the phrases that we have within Luke are also found in First Samuel and seem to be drawn from there. The description of Samuel as um, growing in wisdom and knowledge and the fear of, um, and in favor with God and man, those sorts of expressions are used both of Samuel and of Christ. And it seems not in an accidental way, we're supposed to see Christ as one who fulfills much that Samuel was pointing towards, the prophet who will declare the end of the temple, the prophet who is the true um, one who does his father's business. And that requires a certain loosening of the connection between Samuel and Eli um, in the same way as the relationship between Christ and his earthly parents is one that is always tempered by the recognition that his true father is God himself and that that business um, will always have to take priority and precedence over the carpentry business of Joseph or um, just the life of their household in Nazareth. He has a bigger mission to be concerned with. And, and uh, even so, Alistair, there's, um, there's still a connection, an interesting connection with um, the rabbis at the temple and with his parents. So the entire story, as we know, is sandwiched between these two statements about Jesus' remarkable growth and wisdom and the grace of God being upon him. Um, and so he is the royal son who's learning wisdom to rule. Um, and... Um, so he's, it's been pointed out before, but he's asking questions uh, in the um, temple and he's uh, giving some answers, but he's not primarily commanding anybody right now. And then also in verse 51, he's submissive to his parents. And all of that is, you know, perfectly consistent with someone who is growing, someone who's 12 years old, who is going to wait 18 more years until he begins his adult mature ministry at the age of 30. And here he is learning obedience by submission, by asking questions. Um, and that's, I think that's important to understand with regard to his sonship. Um, he, uh, although his, obviously his sonship takes precedence over the closest family ties that he has here and, uh, even his connection with the rabbis in the tabernacle. Yet at the same time, uh, he's not completely avoiding them or rejecting them or going around them. But it's through these uh, relationships that he's going to learn wisdom and the wisdom to rule. Yeah, we can we can draw the Christological conclusion too that uh, we we highlighted uh, in the last I think the last episode we got into a discussion of uh, Jesus in relation to the purity laws and emphasizing his true manhood and his submission to the law, and those are those are also implied by the way that Jesus' life is described. It's not that he comes in some kind of perfectly formed humanity. The humanity is growing, becoming strong, 
and he's increasing in wisdom and the grace of God is on him. Those are all actual experiences of the Son of God as he lives this human life. And that's one of the interesting complications that comes up when we think about Jesus' consciousness of being the son of his father. Uh, N.T. Wright has a kind of well-known and controversial passage at the end of Jesus and the Victory of God where he discusses Jesus' sense of vocation, addressing the issue of the messianic self-consciousness of Jesus, uh, which has been such an issue, as I said. What he comes up with, well, I think it's the, the orthodox parameters have to be that Jesus' humanity is subject to all the uh, limitations and growth that any human being is. And so his uh, sense of his vocation, he, as our, our creeds and catechisms tell us that Jesus has a human soul. And so he's increasing his, in knowledge. He's increasing in his grasp of who, who he is and what he's called to do. That's also part of his growth. It's clear that even if he was 12, he has a strong sense of that vocation. But that's still something that's part of his growth before his father. I want to point out something else that I, another symmetry with the end of the, the uh, gospel that I wanted to highlight, especially after the resurrection, Jesus has, has a couple of these appearances to the disciples, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where he runs through the uh, scriptures and shows how he is the fulfillment of uh, Moses, the Psalms, all the prophets. Everything is about his suffering, his glory, and the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins the Gentiles. Uh, and one of the key terms that comes up in those, those passages is the, uh, is the idea of necessity. Uh, the Greek word is day. It is necessary that it is necessary that do you not know that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to enter into his glory. Uh, the scriptures have laid out this pathway for Jesus and he's conform he's conformed to that pathway and his life has been shaped to uh, that. Uh, it, has, it has this kind of necessity to it because of the, the way that uh, God has designed the history of Israel to come to culmination in him. And if this is, the, I think, the first time in the gospel that, that we have that term used. Again, in verse 49, uh, why were you looking for me? Don't you know that it was necessary for me to be about my father's business or in my father's house? And so uh, there's that another, it's another connection between the beginning and end of the gospel uh, and shows that, again, that from the beginning of his, from the first time we see Jesus uh, get a glimpse into how, how Jesus is acting and thinking and what he's, how he's viewing his own, his own work. We see that he's has this sense of destiny. Uh, and as we see that unfolded in the end of the gospel, it's a destiny that's uh, grows out of the history of Israel and the preparation for Jesus that is embedded in that history. So that, that's another, that's another moment where, or another link uh, with the final part of the gospel. So the, uh, the story ends with his mother treasuring up or guarding uh, all these things in her heart. Um, seems to be, obviously, I think, a model for the way the church responds to Jesus and um, exactly what the bride of Christ should do when we hear and learn these stories. Um, uh, when just a few chapters later, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot about treasuring up in your heart what is good and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Um, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. We've pointed this out before in uh, the first two chapters of Luke, but Mary does seem to be exemplary in so many ways for the church, for the bride of Christ, and our relationship to Jesus and his word.
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.